I don't know. I'm reading. Um, I'm reading Radical Hamilton right now. Mm-hmm. Um, Christian Parenti's book, and let me find it. First of all, I didn't know Hamilton was only 23 when the revolution broke out. Wow. And he, which is crazy. But he wrote this to um, his alleged lover, John Lawrence, while it was like they were going through a huge provisioning crisis. And Hamilton was either in the middle of or on the verge of what was a several month nervous breakdown. Mm. You can hardly conceive in how dreadful a situation we are. The army in the course of the present month has received only four or five days rations of meal and we really know not of any adequate relief in future. This distress at such a stage of the campaign sours the soldiery. Tis in vain you make apologies to them. The officers are out of humor, and the worst of evils seems to be coming upon us, a loss of our virtue. I say this to you because you know it and will not cha- charge me with vanity. I hate Congress. I hate the army. I hate the world. I hate myself. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) They should teach that in school. Yeah. I was like, wait, what? (laughs) That's like relatable. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's big, like early 20s vibes. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, damn, dude, I know that feel. (laughs) Yeah. The army is really similar to Hot Topic in a way. (laughs) (laughs) If you really think about it, bro. Yeah. So this thing happens every few weeks where either Ian Corey, who did our theme, by the way, we've had him on twice and I haven't yeah. mentioned that, which is, uh, I feel ashamed, but Ian did our yeah. theme. We've got many a lot thanks. of compliments on it. Yeah, many thanks. But this thing will happen where he, um, either I message him or he messages me with a link to some totally forgotten, like new metal or metalcore band from the early 2000s or late 90s with just the phrase remembered some guys today (laughs) (laughs) and then we go through (laughs) and then we spend the next half hour like remembering some guys back and forth (laughs) 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 it's a really delightful uh uh, like through line in our friendship <laughs> i really appreciate it but this That's time he sent me, what did he send me he was like he sent me crossfade song cold which i like barely remembered and when i heard it of course like it came back and i just want to read you like the three Oh man, I just want to read you like the three comments I found in the YouTube. Because anytime he sends me a, a, and I remember some guys, I go straight to the YouTube comments while I listen. Because you know it's going to be that YouTube fire. Mm-hmm. Um, so here's the, here's the top one, which is really sweet. It says, as a black kid from the hood, I received this song on a PSP demo disc 15 years ago. And this turned me out to rock, metal, and alternative from that day forward. I mean, that's just a really nice recollection, right? <laughs> here's, the, here's, the, here's the next comment. James Hetfield plus Chad Kroger equal his vocals. <laughs> 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 and then uh, this, the, <laughs> this one's my favorite. This is from uh, the commenter Beppis. This guy ain't no simp. That's all caps. <laughs> she came to him and he was like, girl, you, can't you see I'm doing a solo right now? Get out of here. Absolute legend. What a feel. I know. Yeah. So I, lo- I love remembering some guys. Thank you, Ian, for remembering guys with me. Um, this, also- is, this is like the contemporary equivalent of like a Yates poem, like to some guys. <laughs> that i remember yeah yeah totally um 
Speaking of poets, we are back with an American canon episode. Last year, we did Emerson and Poe and teased the idea that we would talk about, for lack of a better term, competing ideas of literary nationalism at this moment in American history because they overlap. And Poe deals way more directly with that. I would say that um, the Emerson essay we read, The American Scholar, you know, before we started recording, John pointed out that Emerson can't talk about anything with talking without talking about everything. So we're probably going to devote most of our time to unpacking and and working through that one. The Poe ones are short, but what's important is that these things are happening in the earlier part of the 19th century. So within like a 20, 30 year window after the War of 1812. And it's after the War of 1812, because America wins, that sustained tide of nationalism washes over the country. And it's amazing to think about that now, like 30, 40 years from just like one conflict is pretty incredible. But it makes sense, right? Because America is so young and the fact that it wins war on its home turf firmly establishes itself and then from like the 1820s to i want to say the 1850s the american population doubled like had it kept at that a pace up until like the 20th century it would probably probably have like i don't know a billion people or something like that matt iglesias would get his wish of one billion americans um (laughs) but i think I just want to situate things in that because that's why these guys are engaging in this idea. That's why it's become relevant at all to talk about what are this country's values uh, aesthetically, intellectually. According to most of the world, the response to that would be none because America is a fledgling country with no real history and no real traditions of arts and letters. So with this sort of economic and military nationalism comes these cultural concerns about Americanness and Americanism. And Poe is super fraught about this, I would say, in reading his little magazine pieces. On the one hand, he hates the Brits (laughs) and despises how beholden Americans still are to British sensibilities and British criticism. While he doesn't want to throw British thought into, you know, the dustbin of history, he would at least like to decouple from it. At the same time, there is the problem of American critics being too soft on American authors simply because they are American, that they're not subjected to sustained or thoughtful critique or understanding because what's actually happening is a political project in the world of letters to create an American sensibility that Poe is very skeptical of. I mean, he's a big fan of the old world of Europe and thinks that there's much to be gained from that. And that to emphasize an author's Americanness, to love them for being American, is in some ways to commit a crime against a different universality. Yeah, he says like the genius is sort of the a person of the world, like they mm-hmm. belong more to the world and, you know, is not a prophet. What was the quote? Like, we're despised in his own land. Yeah, like, yeah. The maxim, like, yeah, the prophet is despised in his own land. Yeah. And I that think th- he was he was really rolling with that and kind of a, a sensibility because, you know, his poetic theory is that poetry is all about producing like a sensation or it's like affective in some sense. It's about beauty a hundred percent and whether or not beauty and truth coincide. So he says like, and theoretically then it follows from that, that like the foreign setting is always to be preferred to the local one because mm-hmm. there's more of a like, I mean, I could see for him, you know, there's more of like a mystery or a, a sense of remove within which different things can take place than it can if you're writing about your hometown. Yeah, And I totally. think that he always 
certainly preferred that like the setting of um what was the story we read where the lady is like trapped alive in the tomb fall of the house of usher has sort of like a vaguely old world setting too so many people get like buried alive or like walled in somewhere (laughs) i was like wait which one did we (laughs) yeah but no i feel like that's the kind of thing he's talking about is like like a vague otherness to the setting uh he he prefers and i really felt it was interesting now upon reflecting on it his feeling towards critics is kind of like born out of the same principle, which is that, you know, like he really hates British critics, specific ones, mainly because he thinks they're morons and that American writing being subjected to their opinions is just humiliating because they're not really worthy of holding, you know, court on these issues. He called one like the sub sub editor of the spectator. Yeah. So Um, brutal. (laughs) Yeah. And I think for him, it was a matter of the the dominant, like aristocratic-ish stock of the United States, you know, at this time, mm-hmm. self-conceived as Anglo-Saxon. There is a sense that Britain was like the foremost wellspring of American people, you know, mm-hmm. at least the literary well-to-do people. And so there is a sense that we have to look that that is our tradition, you know, as writing white Americans. And we look back to Britain and kind of like, they're the cultural hegemon for us. And that seems to be, it seems to be to the extent to which that is utterly unearned at this point. And I think that America had actually, you know, developed to where you could say like, you know, the, the continent has its own luminaries. Now there are people here you can look to who are far more equipped to judge our writing than British people who, you know, are not that smart. And it was a similar feeling of when he turns on the American critics who really go completely soft on horrible American novels, which seems to equally cause great disgust in him, which to me just shows like at base, like the craft matters to him. And yeah, I mean, he's a serious. He won't sacrifice mind. it, and he's searching for standards. Mm-hmm. I think that that's part of what's happening in both the Emerson and the Poe, is that we have this new nation. There's no tradition yet. So, what will the standards be for an American scholar, or American critic, or an American writer? How do we understand those standards? And interestingly, both of them have their own universalism and mm-hmm. toe. I mean, Poe is also struggling <laughs> as he did his whole life, but financially struggling because copyright laws haven't been firmly entrenched yet. So he's also sort of politically and economically very beholden to the success of a national project in America, <laughs> at least for his own livelihood. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's in the mix here too. Yeah, definitely. You, the copyright comes up quite a lot in his writings, I feel like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's like, and, give me uh, that fucking money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but let's just transition to Emerson because so we have we have Poe's concerns, which are sort of um, I would say the practicalities of craft, the and the realities of it, along with the economic realities of being a working writer yeah he wrote several short pieces on the these problems perhaps he wrote more (laughs) they were in our book and we'll enumerate them in the bibliography to the show emerson has a far more metaphysical vantage from which he wants to approach the idea of an american scholar and what that means. What's interesting is other than the title, he doesn't really say American or forward a national idea. It's sort of implied from the values that he lays out, which speaks, I think, to the newness of the idea of this nation. What would he have to refer to as American? Interestingly, at one point, he says, it's actually not the best to live during a revolution. Uh, because the past and the present are being too starkly compared that it is instead better to live in the time that they're living. 
where a different type of comparison can happen. Almost an interregnum where things can be cultivated. What I find interesting about that is that you sense that after America wins its independence, there is likely a crisis of meaning. You know, a lot of these founders were still alive. As we said in our Poe episode, Poe studied under James Madison. You know, Thomas Jefferson died in July, a couple months before Poe ended up on campus at UVA. So I was very taken by Emerson accepting the challenge by saying, it's not necessarily better to live at this revolution people were likely nostalgic for. Instead, there's something else to do here. So we should probably walk through what he has in mind for the American scholar. Yeah, it's really interesting. Right on the first page, you just kind of get dumped into it when he's talking about how there's one man, and that's capitalized, one and man. Um, Mm -hmm. Present to all particular men, only partially, or through one faculty, and that you must take the whole society to find the whole man. Um, And he talks about how there's obviously like different jobs you can have in a society or different roles, but that these are only man in part, and Mm -hmm. man's wholeness is not there. And that all too often, in fact, you have someone um, like the planter who is man sent out into the field to gather food is seldom cheered by any idea of the true dignity of his ministry. He sees his bushel and his cart and nothing beyond and sinks into the farmer instead of man on the farm. You get right off the bat a pretty crazy idea. And if you're sitting in the audience expecting him to talk about like the future of American scholarship and suddenly you're being treated to this, I can see how it would be somewhat confusing at first. But it's interesting because uh, it's one of the first of many times he's going to talk about pretty metaphysical ideas. And so reading this, I read through it and I realized that I was very interested in like what he was reading because clearly like there's a lot going on here and there's a lot of comparisons you can draw to other things. So, you know, what was he reading? And I had some vague idea that Emerson is like one of the most international writers in American history in terms of his influences. Um, Has to be. Has to yeah, be. I feel like this really is not communicated to you at all when you hear about him in school, but so eclectic. Yeah, however, also representing something like, you know, that sort of grew on this continent of its own as much as he took from other places. And I think that's one of the interesting relationships we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. I mean, we could say that for the entirety of the American project. I mean, yeah, uh, Jefferson had three portraits in his in Monticello Mm. Sir Francis Bacon who was it I think it was like Montesquieu and like John Locke or something like that I don't know if I've talked about that on here before that definitely feels like Jefferson's lineage right yeah yeah and when Hamilton went there for dinner because Hamilton and Jefferson love taking the piss out of each other (laughs) Hamilton was like who are those guys and oh I think it was Newton uh, mm. instead of Montesquieu and <laughs> Jefferson goes oh these are these men I think they're the greatest men to have ever existed and Hamilton smiles wryly and says hmm well that's a shame because the greatest man who ever lived was Julius Caesar <laughs> uh, which Jefferson wrote about that moment extensively to anyone who would read about it because to him it revealed exactly who alexander hamilton was <laughs> this closet monarchist like wanting to consolidate power with no intellectual regard for enlightenment values well, that's hilarious i'm surprised i've ever heard that story before uh but so like all men partaking of one man you know it's an interesting idea so Emerson was friends with Thomas Carlyle. They wrote to each other and stuff. Carlyle rendered a lot of German idealism into English. He wrote an influential book on Novalis, the the novelist and thinker. 
a few other things, and they often corresponded, I guess, about this sort of thing. Emerson also read a lot of German idealist books in partial translation and periodicals. He read eventually some of them in full English translations. He had a copy of Kant's Critique of Pure Reason. He had some books by Hegel. He was definitely at least familiar with Hegel's philosophy of history and the dialectic, basically. He really got into Schelling, um, and one of Schelling's like descendants, basically, Lawrence Oaken, who I've never heard of until I was looking into this stuff, mm. but they were basically like Goethe, Schelling, and Oaken, kind of like three big figures in this non-materialistic science, sort of like a counter-materialist science that developed in Germany, kind of alongside what is sort of called nature philosophy. It's a pretty big umbrella, that term, but gesturing towards non-mechanistic orderings of the universe and incorporating a lot of what will be termed there are a lot of esoteric influences on them, but I think recent scholarship has come to find the aims of like that specific tradition of science to not be as laughable or ridiculous as maybe like the English world. We received them kind of like, oh, that's sort of a joke. Like, you know, how funny that they're doing like mystical science. But anyways, this was a big deal for Emerson because one of his like lifelong goals was finding corroboration for things he already believed. I think a big part of his reading is that he basically held a few tenets and he was going to look around the world for like things that corroborated these things. And one of those was that like British empiricism was just wrong. Like it was horrible. <laughs> it was evil. You know, uh, go off my guy. <laughs> yeah. It was like, had nothing to do with reality. And so um, one of the things the German philosophy did for him was to find a pretty sustained critique of that and an articulation of something else. It's, there is an interesting section of the paper I read where they talk about how Emerson vastly preferred German philosophy to British empiricism, but he expected something even more revolutionary than what he was able to find there. And he wrote that in Germany, there still seems some hidden dreamer from whom this strange, genial, poetic, comprehensive philosophy comes and from which the English and French get mere rumors and fragments, which are yet the best philosophy we know. And he wrote that he found the Germans clever men, but nothing so great and deep a poet sage as we looked for. He seems to have primarily sought out a contradiction of 18th century materialism. And since he found this, he approved highly of the Germans, but had little taste for thinking he found to be overly speculative which comes out a lot when he talks about Schelling and Hegel, um, who he likes the spirit, I think, of the work, but he's not interested in the technicalities. And I mm -hmm. think we're going to talk a lot about theory and practice. And theory, as we understand the term, I don't think he had a huge interest in understanding theory well. Mm -hmm. Like, he didn't really master Kant. He didn't really master any of the stuff that he studied. He just looked at it enough to see that it suggested the things that he liked and was sort of inspirational as literature, but. Yeah. That's an American habit that Tocqueville yes. kind of makes a big deal about. In oh, absolutely. In to his aristocratic horror. This is sort of like the method I think for not only Emerson, but many of the transcendentalists mm -hmm. from what I was able to see. And so he has like, while he respects and admires them, his greater Admiration is reserved for people like Jakob Bohm and um, Emanuel Swedenborg, two extremely, um, we'll say, like inspired and mystical thinkers mm. who I can't even really give a summary of at this point in time. But if you go look them up, you'll see what I mean. Sort of for him, like they're the better version, like they're doing it the way that he would rather do it. Like it's mystical, it's intuitive, it's inspired in a way. Swedenborg for him is a little bit too cold still, a little too like unfeeling, whereas Bohm is more like really in the thick of it. And I think he ultimately preferred him. And there's in all of them, this idea that subject and object are not really distinct, just only in our, only here and now, but like in truth, everything goes back to the one and that, you know, nature 
is a symbol or an emblem of an internal world of our mind and of the mind of God. So you're reading nature and reading God, but all of these things are together. Like we talk about his pantheism. Yeah. And and he says in the American scholar, there is never a beginning. There is never an end to the inexplicable continuity of this web of God, but always circular power returning into itself. Which is process too, which is interesting because it's not just, pantheism or like total unicity of being but it's also like being is undergoing process like there's a progressive and deeply american i think some people will say element to that oh totally i mean emerson writes you know man the reformer yeah that it is a man's duty this man's duty to reform the world i mean that's probably that's that pure uncut american progressivism (laughs) yeah which is so fascinating because he takes that and is so he really likes the neoplatonists which have a lot of similar idea i mean the neoplatonists and german idealism have a lot of connection Mm -hmm. um especially like Schelling. he takes uh a lot of hindu thinking which is extremely monist like all things are also one thing and that's basically i think in some hindu thinking like completely coextensive with god or something like that so it's again like a form of pantheism however in hinduism especially and i think probably you could also argue in a lot of neoplatonism like though there's apparent motion i think there's also like stasis Hmm. overrides things like there's no there's like there's not a process theology of hinduism as far as i'm aware like there are many schools of philosophy and thought within Hinduism. So maybe it's represented somewhere, but like the one that I know the most about Advaita Vedanta, like extremely like things are all really in truth, not moving. Like they are just as they are. And a lot of the movement is only apparent to some extent. Whereas Emerson, you know, he likes part of that, but I think for him, like as an American, perhaps things are always becoming it's like sort of Deleuzian in a way when I read it, like mm-hmm. everything's always in a process of constant becoming. So, well, there's a lot in the Hindu translations he's reading from Sanskrit about like, look inside yourself. Here's from the laws of Menu. The soul itself is its own witness. The soul itself is its own refuge. Offend not thy conscious soul, the supreme internal witness of men. And that's something he copied into his notebook. And it's so clear to me, like reading this and reading that, like a lot of, I won't say that this was the like origin of his idea of like, you find everything in yourself, but definitely it spoke to concerns he already had. But one of the big differences you see there is that he thinks that there is a newness that's going to be happening at each moment that you do that. Whereas there is an eternity that's being revealed maybe in Hinduism, but it's an eternity Like, so there's no newness or oldness. It all just basically is. But for Emerson, every revealing is like also a progression. Right. And I think that's part of where he sort of cribs from Hegel a little bit Mm -hmm. in that in the process of living things out and the particularity of your historical moment, there is a, let's say, an occlusion of some things and a revelation of others. And that it's the working out of that. I mean, from the quote that, that you just read too, and in fine, the ancient precepts know thyself and the modern precepts study nature become at last one maxim. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the purest distillation of his insight into that. But as you said, there is this, this new quality that I think is very, it helped explain some of what we saw in our last reading yeah definitely emerson and while i still have misgivings about him i could appreciate him more i initially read this for school this um the american scholar like a year or two ago i did not like it at the time like i was like this is overly bombastic and like it's intellectually just like not you know what i mean like he's not intellectually serious about any of his influences so it's just a hodgepodge and i was just very like not into it but this time around i think i appreciated it a lot more i don't know why i, mean, I was able to it, be way more charitable to yeah him, i think 
I mean, part of it for me was understanding that this is a, a speech given. Yeah. So it has that quality to it. I understand he was this master of rhetoric. And I also start to understand because he's very adamant that the American scholar is an individual, that knowing yourself and tapping in to that eternal yet novel essence of your moment mm. is to put yourself against the crowd. However, he still has this democratic sensibility where the American scholar is also someone who speaks to anyone is interested in discussing the realities of the blacksmith's life with the blacksmith is does not see himself because of his commitment to theory as totally separate from civic and working life, which feels very American to me, both the difficulty of reconciling individual and crowd, but also the suspicion of, I would say, a more aristocratic perspectives. And so when I see those ethics and those difficulties pop up in here, as he's giving this speech, I start to realize that this is what, at least in the North, <laughs> uh, American democratic culture starts to look like. One of the things that we forget, we so often see democracy as procedural and instrumental. But as we talked with Kyungman's son, and I'm hoping to get Frank Ferrady to come talk to us uh, about this, is that democracy is also a culture. And this is evidence of what that culture looked like in this time. Yeah, I really, to that point, his elitism is interesting because there's definitely like a massive elitism that you'll find in like a lot of his writings, but it's predicated on like a personal worth that anyone could potentially possess. So it's yeah. not like only some people are the elect for Emerson, like everyone is the elect, but like only some people are realizing that. And mm -hmm. so it's, he still will distrust the mass for certain or the crowd or the common idea but it's not so much it's because that those people like are unrealized. It's not because they can't be unrealized or that it requires some sort of special education or special access to something to be realized. It's merely like an internal state. Yeah. And it's just one that, you know, he'll look around and say like not many people are like this, but it seems like this speech is one of his attempts to sort of put forth this idea to people that they're like, you're standing against things in so many ways, but you're also standing with them. Like that's one of the big themes of this is, you know, not going the way of common religion or common sociality, not chasing money or prestige, but having like a set of principles, really whatever they happen to be like ideas and holding firm to them and then just planning yourself and, you know, he says you'll spend time in poverty and loneliness when doing that. But that that's what he sees as like, this is the essence of the American scholar and the way that they are in the world and their activity. And so, yes, they are distinguishing themselves above others. But it's, I think ideally it would be as a beacon to others to also become a part of that group. So, yes. There is like both a real egalitarianism and a real like uh, sense of, of something of the elite, like kind of mixed together in sort of a novel way, I think. Mm -hmm. I guess an American way, you could say. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and a lot of this I felt was very evident in the way he discusses what one's to do with books. Yeah. Right. So obviously we've talked about he sees reading is important, but not everything. And that you can perhaps learn more by being out in the world. Like reading is what you do when you're not doing something else, as I guess, to put it. or life is our dictionary, as he says, which is mm -hmm. an incredibly surprising statement <laughs> uh, that I think sums up how he would consider things. Yeah, it's, I mentioned before the show, but there's an interesting direct pa parallel in the Bhagavad Gita. Um, where he copied it into his notebook at some point when reading it from an excerpt in a philosophy book by Victor Cousin. 
and the excerpt reads, as a well, a fountain with its waters more or less stagnant is useless when we have access to a living spring. So all the sacred books are useless when we have access to the true theologian. And Kusan adds that that is the mystic and inspired theologian. And, you know, like kind of getting into this doctrine of the active soul, like, like Emmett said, like the world, like it's the dictionary, like you're reading, like that is the book for, for Emerson right. and other books are like other men's readings of that book. So right, they which are important for cultivating your own truth. And perhaps they can show you something of the truth of your time. Yes. But they, they aren't the be all end all. And in fact, reading just to read or having what uh, someone would consider more perhaps ironically scholarly pursuits are suspect mm. to him because they create a type of indolence um, in terms of action in the world that he wants to yeah absolutely man thinking must not be subdued by his instruments yeah yeah you know i mean i was thinking about galileo while reading this because galileo forwards the idea that the whole world is a book written in math Mm. and that inspires very directly uh hobbes who spent time with galileo and was a huge admirer of him and Galileo's impact on Leviathan is I think quite obvious in the ways that Hobbes wants to articulate a type of science to political life but that Emerson sees the world in some ways as you know life is a dictionary a book also but that it is written in the language of nature Mm. this language of the soul and its unity with everything Mm -hmm. else. And I think to bring it back to what John was talking about at the beginning of our discussion of Emerson, that's his split with Anglo empiricism. You know, he'd be like, yes, you know, life is a book, uh, but it is not the one that you think it is. Yeah, there's definitely. And it's, you know, interestingly, one of the big ideas throughout like what you would call like Western esotericism is correspondence. Um, Like things relate correspondingly, like things in my mind correspond to the world because they're like, everything is macrocosm and microcosm essentially. It's definitely a different way of looking at things and one that was systematically purged from the Academy during the enlightenment and then finds itself coming back in a lot of weird ways. And a lot of Emerson's influences are the sort of weird rejected, you know, cultivators of like forbidden knowledge, like Bohm, Swedenborg. Um, Yes. It gets filtered into German idealism. And I think interestingly, like it's all coming out in Emerson too. And it's not even entirely unrelated from Westerners who had a real abiding interest in like Oriental metaphysics, um, the East in general, like this stuff was all seen as corresponding directly with what Plato and Aristotle were saying in their view. And so there was kind of this interesting development of a sort of like an, an underside to the enlightenment reading of antiquity, like a counter tradition or something like that. Emerson kind of receives that sort of thing. And I think people see it as, because, you know, one of the big things is like, the separation of man and nature is kind of like what the romantics are reacting to in some way. And I think that looking to these different forms of like monism um, is a means of trying to Mm -hmm. repair or go like to a different place where that's not true, where you can have science, but it's a form of science where I'm not radically separated as an observer, but Mm -hmm. I am a part I can know because I'm a part of, I guess you could say. Right. Yeah. It's an extension of me and I'm an extension of it. Mm -hmm. So that knowledge can't be too far afield. So what is this American scholar going to do? Right. Yeah. (laughs) Like that's a, he saves that for the end. And I want to situate how he sees this. America already has a politics. It is a deeply political nation at this time. That feels hard to imagine now because politics is sort of this cultural spectacle that we all engage in. It has this weird simulated discursive quality to it. But politics was, I would say, a far more tactile 
practice for those who were allowed to participate at that time, right? So it has that. It has a religious sensibility. This is true both North and South, something that they share, even if they have different spins on it. It sees itself as a Christian nation, as an extension of Europe. So it has those elements. It, of course, has an economic understanding of itself, always has, always will. Nature is in part being tamed by things like the post office, which is deputized to create roads and dams and all these things that they can actually deliver mail, right? There aren't a lot of roads. That's a huge problem for logistics during the revolution. You know, we're going to enter into the railroad era. So what's it missing? What doesn't America have? Well, it doesn't have culture. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's what I think Emerson sees as missing. And I think this, what I'm going to read, has some bearing on what he sees as his vision for the American scholar. This revolution is to be wrought by the gradual domestication of the idea of culture, capital C. The main enterprise of the world for splendor, for extent, is the upbuilding of a man. Here are the materials strewn along the ground. The private life of one man shall be a more illustrious monarchy, more formidable to its enemies, more sweet and serene in its influence to its friend than any kingdom in history. For a man rightly viewed comprehendeth the particular natures of all men. So when I read that, the things that come before it is he goes, is he sort of talking about how politics is all well and good? but that's not the American scholar's place. Instead, I think, as John alluded to earlier, there's this sort of beacon in the night quality to the American scholar who will, from the engagement with nature, this truth with which he corresponds with the progressive moment of his arriving in history, upbuild himself to create via the truth of his own soul word and deed legible to all men who communicate in this truth of nature what culture will be in America, which will be part of the truth of capital M man overall. Yeah. It's very mystical. He and Carlyle really love great men. And I don't know if he got that from Carlyle's book on great men, but certainly they shared the concern. If not, if it wasn't like one direction, Um, but you see, he brings up often like people he thinks are great, you know, people in that paragraph or somewhere close. He even says like, this idea has inspired the genius of Goldsmith, Burns, Cowper, and in a newer time of Goethe, Wordsworth and Carlyle. So you even get to mention. Um, so there is a sense that there's this universal sort of like, there are always men who are great in their time. And I think these men for, for Emerson are like coincidentally, like what he wants the American scholar to be aspiring towards, which is to be the person who, you know, takes from the past, but also rises to meet his moment and reads like uses his active soul to read the world as it is then in that moment of becoming and as it's becoming. And so he sees this in some senses, I think like America will then contribute its great men to the world, much as great men have arisen, you know, for eons before until now. So it's both like, it's both very American, but it's also a part of something that's much longer and more universal, which is, you know, like a marriage that often happens, I think, in Emerson. Definitely. There's a passage he writes, because you were talking about the context, and it was pretty brutal. Um, The spirit of the American freeman is already suspected to be timid, imitative, tame. Public and private avarice make the air we breathe thick and fat. The scholar is decent, indolent, complacent. See already the tragic consequence The mind of this country, taught to aim at low objects, eats upon itself. 
There is no work for anyone but the decorous and the complacent. Young men of the fairest promise who begin life upon our shores, inflated by the mountain winds, shined upon by all the stars of God, find the earth below, not in unison with these, but are hindered from action by the disgust which the principles on which business is managed inspire and turn drudges or die of disgust, some of them suicides. What is the remedy? Brutal. Yeah. <laughs> like, <whew. laughs> damn, son, where'd you find that? <laughs> yeah. Now, there are moments where I'm reading Emerson in the background. I just hear, Mike will make this. <laughs> <laughs> Totally. Uh, so yeah i i mean obviously that resonated with me <laughs> um is it not the chief disgrace in the world not to be a unit not to be reckoned one character not to yield that peculiar fruit which each man was created to bear but to be reckoned in the gross in the hundred or the thousand of the party the section to which we belong in our opinion predicted geographically as the North or the South. Not so brothers and friends, please God, ours shall not be so hmm. really like interesting to think about like, cause it's the individualism thing that we talk about and like whether or not, like how does individualism relate to democracy? And I think when Lash brought up Emerson, perhaps he thought of this because yeah. there's something here of the fact that like like democracy you know it's a culture or it's institutions and it's self-governance and we're doing it together but at the same time it can only be done by certain kinds of people i think is the emerging thesis like mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you have it to requires have a, a subjectivity yeah you have to have a democratic subjectivity and perhaps like that is in effect what is being described here and it sounds maybe strange because it's sort of the opposite of what mm -hmm. our current subjectivity is. And indeed our current condition is that we are reckoned in the gross with the North and the South, you know, mm -hmm. like with our opinions predicted geographically, um, mm -hmm. like sort of interestingly uh, prescient there to have mentioned it in that way. But yeah, I mean, that's an interesting moment. You know, he was, uh, he believed in abolition. Um, mm -hmm. John Henry stayed with him for a little bit. Henry also stayed with Frederick Douglass um, for a time and tried to get Frederick Douglass to come with him to the Harper's Ferry raid. Um, and Douglass is just like, you're going to die. Like, I can't, <laughs> yeah. I can't go with you, man. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, although he had great uh, admiration. Unfortunately, we only have one letter between the two of them which is, um, John, come downstairs. Supper is ready. <laughs> uh, which yeah. uh, sucks. <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> I mean, it's a shame we don't have more. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, this is the situation America is in right now in the 1830s, 40s. Things are really heating up, you know, um, the contradictions and conflicts between North and South are starting to escalate um, and result in a series of insane compromises as America expands. But it's interesting that there is this commitment to uh, a non-geographically determined truth mm -hmm. of what it is to be and perhaps to be an American scholar is that he's still thinking in terms of a United States, you know, that there must be something to this nation despite its obvious divides. Yeah. Yeah. It's very much implied throughout the whole thing that there's, and I, it makes me think too, like his focus on nature must have been somewhat of the heart of that because mm -hmm. it's still at a time when like the country is not nearly as domesticated nowhere as near. it is now N a nowhere lot of near. the country is still like the west you know still mm -hmm. there's pioneers and all that kind of thing going on yeah i mean at this point the idea of like illinois and ohio those are like those are the northwest territories you know yeah and so much is not 
so much of it, I would still say you would have in the mind of an East Coast person is like, that's the wild. That's like barely touched by man, mm-hmm. like the mountains, the trees, all this stuff. And I think that in identifying, and I'm sure nature was a lot bigger of a concept for him because it's obvious they had just trees and forests, but like that's still part of it. And mm-hmm. and identifying that as like, you know, like this is what the active soul does. And you have this place that's not like any other place that, you know, Europeans have been before. Mm-hmm. And I think, so there's something of a newness there. And I think we saw it in other writings too. Like this is the land of the Hudson River School painters. Like when you look at that stuff and the gleaming, you know, like crazy light over the huge landscape and mm-hmm. there's like a lone grizzly bear out there. And you're like, it's sort of, you know, the I guess like, like, there's just like one little dude at the end yeah. of a cliff, <laughs> like, this, <laughs> whoo, like huge scene. I guess it's like a specific access to the sublime, you know, because being like a process guy, this moment has never been before. This place has never been before. He was a Heraclitian, you know, in so many ways, this will never be again. And it's, you know, not even now anymore. So America occupies like a moment and we're here. And so in that sense, there is some kind of destiny, maybe Mm -hmm. not manifest destiny, but... (laughs) Yeah, something. some type of destiny. I mean, I was thinking about this as you were talking. Uh, I discussed last time what happened to Union soldiers when they entered into the New Mexican territory during the Civil War and were confronted with like Anasazi ruins, uh, and like that, and what a shock that was to them. How ancient everything was, yeah. and to encounter uh, a European outpost so far out there even if it's other and spanish and catholic <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, still very european um comparatively i was thinking about this as a contradiction in what happens during manifest destiny and westward expansion not just the insane barbarity of it all perhaps best captured by blood meridian by Cormac McCarthy, but that in a way, as America tried to stamp its novelty and newness into the earth by expanding and brutalizing tribes, frankly, um, and things like that, it also confronted a past it never knew was there that many Americans had no idea about that so extended beyond what the American thing was in Piketty's capital in the 20th century or 21st century, whatever the fuck it's called. I'm not going to like go to bat for that book. But what I will say is that he does say something interesting in the early chapters, maybe the introduction when he's looking at America and he says, you know, a country that's like tripled in size within its like first hundred, 150 years, like that at some point you enter like a quality quantity philosophical problem. Like, is it even still the same place? Yeah. You know, are the same laws still relevant? I think we're dealing with that now Mm -hmm. in some pretty big ways. But it's worth, I think, meditating on that. Because when we read Emerson, so much of this is just contingent. That no one has any idea. And to me, metaphysically, that's part of where the process element really resonates. Mm Mm-hmm is that there's this intrepid type of discovery that's being embarked upon that is so wedded to the American identity. With the closure of the frontier, where is left to go? Once some of these things stop being contingent and they start to be cast, you know, the die becomes cast. Mm there's a new series of questions that need to be asked. And I wonder if we're even approaching them today. What's the role of the American scholar today to even ask that question today is to sound as ridiculous as to say, mom and dad, I'm going to be a reformer. Yeah. You know, what does that mean? You know, it there's a cynicism me. to that, that, that comes with all of this too. Right. To say there's this idea of the American scholar now that one would put out this ideal type, this thing that would have a job like 
the question would be like, who's scholar? What is meant by America? And those are fine questions to ask, but often they're not asked in good faith. They are meant to showcase the inability of such a thing to exist. Yeah. Like when I read the quote about how you can only have a successful life if you're complacent and and decorous, um, it felt like, well, it felt like, yeah, he's writing about right now. Like the person who's actually like living in this way is one of the people who like turns to drudges, you know, and misery, like, because that's like we, and I think this is something similar and some of his old articles, Kantbot used to talk about like Weimar. I think he, I don't really know much about this, but he talks about Weimar and like, it's this small German state of one of the many kind of like uh, remnants of the Holy Roman empire um, in that system. And one of the major problems facing it is that you have like a lot of talent or a lot of extremely bright and interesting people who have a lot to contribute, who have no way to contribute anything. And you see that mm-hmm. like in the life of um, young Werther. Yeah, definitely there. Um, or like, you know, Hegel becomes famous, but like most of his, some of his friends do not mm-hmm. like are yeah, not Schopenhauer, six- and Schopenhauer hates Hegel because he can't get in on that fame. I yeah, think. there's a certain like uh Herldelin, you know, the way that his life ends up. There's like a, yeah. there's a certain level of like there's just not, you know, like Herldelin spent a lot of his life looking for work, like finding people to tutor and stuff. And there's this sense of like we need new institutions or we need some way, like these people need to be incorporated into society. Yeah as there's no other way that we're going to be able to like flourish or do anything. If this is how like they, if this is their lot in life. And I got the same exact feeling reading Emerson talking about just that fact in America, but I get the same exact feeling living in America right now in many ways. Like we have a lot of talent, but I often feel as though much of it is overlooked or misused um, a lot of the time. And that there's, you know, and I think a lot of our successes materially or otherwise can be attributed to the fact that we have at times had institutions where you could say that individual genius was allowed to flourish to some extent. Totally. But that perhaps we're in a time of like the erosion of that sort of thing again. And it's, well, what's the line like the best lose all conviction or <laughs> I can't remember it anymore, but you know what I'm saying? Oh, oh, from, um, from Yates. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. You get the, the guy and the I worst mean, are filled with passionate intensity. Yeah. The worst are filled with passionate intensity. Uh, it's, it's probably something that's been quoted a hundred times over a hundred years, but like mm-hmm. thousands of times, but you know what I mean? Like it does feel like we're in that position again, if we manage to get out of it in some sectors in some ways but like it feels as though we're back there and like we're asking ourselves like why do we have an abundance of like talent and like seemingly you know like if you want to go into academia for instance like most people are telling you like don't do it like stop turn around Mm -hmm. like justin murphy has created a whole thing predicated on the fact that you can do academia outside of academia now. Like, and I think this is the sign that the institutions, which we relied on like that to form a material basis for life, a financial basis for life, but where you're doing work, that's not exactly like, I'm not a carpenter, you know, I'm like writing books and I'm reading and I'm thinking about things. Um, Like they don't serve that purpose anymore, not in the way that they need to. And so now we're trying to build new things. And I think maybe that this was the situation analogous, not exact of Emerson where, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, he didn't belong to any academy. He was just writing in Mm -hmm. his own time. Um, Unsurprisingly, Justin has great admiration for Emerson because of that. I mean, Emerson was one of the best-selling authors America had produced yeah up until this point it's like him james fenimore cooper and like maybe one other guy <laughs> the row you know um 
but his book sold well even into his old age, uh, even after he thought he was past his prime, you know. Um, mm. And I mean, I agree with, with much of what you've just said. There is this sense of um, interregnum. Mm-hmm. The dark truth of where we are now is that perhaps we all want there to be some sort of cataclysm, something that shakes things up enough for things to change. Unfortunately, that's not as near as I think people would like it to be. The situation we're in is tragically secure. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and I don't think the burden of being resourcefully pessimistic enough to accept that and figure out what to do anyway uh, is intense and is everywhere discouraged. It's a big lemon in the milk. Mm-hmm. And this is our task. I mean, maybe what we're doing, John, is we are trying to figure out, you and I, what it means for us to be American scholars, such that we are. I think so. It's probably the heart of all of this. So we were really hard on Emerson on self-reliance. And frankly, I think he deserved it for that essay. (laughs) Um, I wouldn't take that back, but I very much appreciated and was sympathetic to his efforts in the American scholar. I have a feeling we're going to read a lot more of him now that we've read this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The oversoul and nature nature are things we need to encounter. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Those have a, a resounding, resounding impact, not just in America, but but elsewhere, including Nietzsche. So the reason why it's difficult to end this is because it isn't the end. We're going to do more of this. We're probably going to depart from the 19th century for now, that we will likely return most directly with Frederick Douglass at some point this year. Mm-hmm. Easily one of the greatest writers America has ever produced. Um. And we'll spend some time talking about the difficulties of America. I would also like to be brave and do one about um, Huckleberry Finn and defend Mark Twain. Oh, yeah. You know, Mark Ripito said that's the greatest novel ever written. <laughs> yeah, of course he would. I uh, love that Mark Ripito yeah. loves Mark Twain, man. That's, I didn't know that. Oh, that's so charming. <laughs> it was amazing because some guy was like, what's your favorite book ever? What's the greatest book ever written? And he's like... Ogleberry Finn. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, that's a delight. I love that. Fuck. Who's more American than Mark Ripito? I swear to God. (laughs) Got to get that leg drive. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Anthropometry. (laughs) Shout out. uh, (laughs) uh, Shout out to a friend of the show, um, Bill Coyne, uh, who is a starting strength coach. Um, who made Mark Ripito drink Malort when Ripito came out to Chicago. Uh, I hope Bill doesn't mind me telling you this, but Ripito also sent Bill a bunch of emails asking what the conceal and carry laws were in Chicago so that he could bring a bunch of his guns with him for like a three-day weightlifting seminar. <laughs> uh, like I said, who's more American than Mark Ripito? So I think we'll end it on that. Thank you guys so much. I just want to drop one little advertisement here. I think by the time that this comes out, um, there will be a sign up for a standalone seminar that I will be running. It'll be a lecture with a Q&A or something like that afterwards on book one of Plato's Republic and the ideas of justice therein. I'm doing that through Indie Thinkers. The link will be in the show notes by this point. Um, If not, Keep an eye on my Twitter at dumb Aristotle. And I would also like to ask you guys again, please, please rate and review and share any episodes that you like with other people. We thrive on that. We really need it. And we appreciate it so much. We love hearing from you guys too. So feel free to DM us. That's it. Stay safe out there. And thank you so much for listening. Yeah. Thank you for listening.